Well, as, uh, as we have uh, sung and prayed and heard and seen already this morning, uh, this is the Sunday that we remember the Epiphany, which uh, was on Friday. Epiphany is when the church celebrates that Jesus came as the light. And that he came as the light, not just uh, for a few people in a place pretty far from here a long time ago, but that he came as the light for all people everywhere at all times, including for all of us here this morning. Now on this Sunday, we usually uh, talk about the Magi, you know, the wise men, because they are a pretty clear picture of this truth. There's a, a strange bunch of pagan astrologers from way far away whose lives are upended exceedingly with great joy when they find Jesus and they fall down and they worship him. But this morning I want us to read and talk about what happened after the Magi left. And if you know, um, you know that it is a tragic and dark chapter, but through it, Matthew wants us to know that the birth of Jesus marks the beginning of the end for horrors like people like Herod. The birth of Jesus, the light, means hope for people like us. So let me read uh, from Matthew 2 for us. I'll read verses 13 through 18, and you can follow along in the order of worship if you'd like. It's printed there. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, uh, as we always do, that through your spirit you would visit each of us in... uh, Exactly the places where we find ourselves this morning, those of us who feel near and close and ready to hear and to eat and to feast, and those of us who don't, those of us who have uh, faith and those of us who don't, and those of us who aren't sure, meet all of us and show us the grace of Jesus, our brother, the one who came in solidarity and change us by his grace. And we prayed in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I, uh, <clears throat> I follow a couple of uh, dad accounts on Instagram. They aren't uh, advice or inspiration accounts or anything like that. They're mostly just a bunch of dumb dad jokes and uh, things that make fun of dads. Um, for things that I guess dads like, there's lots of ribbing about wearing New Balance sneakers and uh, wearing cargo shorts and grilling, stuff like that. 
And one of the recurring themes uh, on these accounts is about how dads are drawn to certain things like moths to a light bulb, you know, on the porch. This idea that there are certain things that dads just cannot resist. Seen a lot of videos of dudes uh, standing around looking at someone's new lawnmower or uh, five or six guys standing at a fence looking at someone else mow their lawn or this whole block of uh, guys ambling out of their houses to watch the city tree trimmers work or to watch construction guys uh, dig in the street. And these videos usually have the Home Depot jingle playing underneath them. They are effective because they feel very true. And I thought about um, those this week, most specifically really about the idea of being inescapably drawn to something, of being drawn to something in a way that seems like there is no other thing that could happen. Because it comes out in Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus. You know, in Matthew, there's no uh, angel choirs, there is no pondering in anybody's hearts, there's no magnificats, there's no swaddling cloths. In Matthew, there is just the trouble. Joseph grappling with his resolve over a hard and painful decision. Strange pagan astrologers who trouble an entire city. A fearful king slaughtering children and a holy family on the run. Refugees seeking asylum from the start. And church, nothing about any of that is coincidental. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is drawn. Jesus is drawn in solidarity to where the pain and trouble are always. Jesus is drawn in solidarity to where the pain and trouble are. From day one, Jesus enters hurt, and he enters trouble, and he enters brokenness with great intention. His flight towards these places is inexorable. And that is the best news that any of us are ever going to hear. And you can read the Gospels from the front to the back, and you'll see that it's true. Jesus does not come in spite of. He doesn't come making his way around the trouble. He flies to the trouble precisely because of the trouble to bring forgiveness and healing and hope. He is drawn to it. So, of course, the wise men had come drawn by something, drawn by a star, drawn by this wild notion that maybe this newborn king would be worthy of worship. So naturally, when they get to the region, they head to Jerusalem because that was the seat of the state's power. That's where Herod was, and they figured if anyone would know about a new king being born or about where this king would be, it would be Herod. He tells them to go to Bethlehem, and they worship, and their lives are completely changed, and presumably the places to which they return are completely changed. But they didn't know the kind of man Herod was. And right up until the angel tipped them off, they had no idea that they had been unwittingly caught up in his desperate scheme to keep himself and his family in power. But once they know, they head home another way, avoiding him altogether. And you get the sense that it's that very night, the very night after the visit of the Magi, that an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. Whenever it was, Joseph didn't waste any time. Verse 14 says, He and Mary and Jesus leave under the cover of darkness, and they begin their flight into Egypt. Herod was a puppet king of the Roman Empire. 
They, uh, they liked to use locals when they could because locals knew the customs and ways of a place better than they did, and that usually lent itself to reduced reductions in cost. Mercilessly crushing dissent was costly, and Rome would avoid it if it could. And like all local kings and rulers, pretty much everywhere else in the empire, Herod had a very simple job. His job was to keep order and to keep the tax revenue flowing to Rome. And if he could do it, if he could pull it off, then his reward uh, was protection from Rome and a healthy cut of the revenue. He had almost complete autonomy in his region, but what he did not have was any say in the next region over, the next province over, which happened to include Egypt. There was no formal extradition treaty in place with Egypt, and so lots of Jewish folks had fled there for asylum over the years. So before he can walk, before he can talk, Jesus becomes a refugee, an asylum seeker, far from home. An asylum seeker on the run, because if his family had stayed, he would have been killed. He is an alien, he is a stranger, he is a sojourner from the start. And church, I think that's pretty important that we sit a few moments with that, because first of all, why? <laughs> why? I mean, if Jesus is who the church has professed him to be, if he is who the gospel writers say that he is from the very first lines of their gospels, if he is the Son of God, if he is the Word who was with God in the beginning, then why? Surely there could have been a different orchestration for the first years of his life. Surely things could have been made a little easier for his mom and his dad and himself. Surely, surely he didn't need to sleep in in strange borrowed beds and eat the kind of food and wear the kind of clothes that you have to come by the hard way. Surely he didn't have to feel the uncertainty and feel the concern radiating off his young parents as they tried to sort their way through exile, right? He, He didn't need that unless... Unless that was the orchestration. Unless that solidarity was the whole point before the foundation of the world. Surely he has borne our griefs, the prophet said. Surely he has carried our sorrows. A bruised reed he won't break. He is a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Jesus comes this way in solidarity with the human race. Jesus comes this way in solidarity with you and with me. Jesus comes this way in solidarity with the stranger and the alien and the sojourner. Matthew quotes from uh, Hosea 11. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord, by the, through the, the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And Hosea 11, that beautiful poem that we already talked about at the baptism, that, that of course is an allusion to the Exodus. And the son there is all of God's people. 
Everyone God delivered. All of the people who were liberated from slavery in Egypt. All of God's people get personified as the one son. And there's a lot going on with Matthew's use of Hosea, but at least one of the things is to say this. Jesus sums up his people. As the theologians say it, he, uh, he recapitulates our history. He gathers his people up into his life with all of our weakness and all of our sin and trouble and waywardness and suffering. He gathers all of us and all of our stuff up into his life. And he leads us through the cross and resurrection and ascension into freedom. He is the son who lives faithfully when we have not, precisely because we have not. So that he can lead us home from exile into the freedom that we were made for. Church, that's who we follow in faith. Or who, who we might follow if we haven't yet. And the divine scandal that underpins this good news, this mystery that's so great that you and I were never going to get to the bottom of it, is that the Son does this by sharing first in who we are. He shares in who we are, in solidarity with us, in our flesh as one of us. He was inexorably drawn to us and to our life and to our mess so that he could give us light and life. And if you doubt that, if you ever doubt that he knows, remember that he started his life on the run as a refugee. John Calvin wrote that this flight is part of the foolishness of the cross and one that overcame the entire wisdom of the world. And that solidarity is another reason that this part of Jesus' life is something that we need to sit with. As as of May of last year, there were about 100 million forcibly displaced people in our world. 27 million of whom are refugees seeking asylum. That is a staggering number. In church, Jesus shares solidarity with every last one of them. And I'm sure you've heard of the 4,000 migrants who have been bused into our city, 1,500 of whom remain our neighbors inside the city right now, this morning, And maybe you've heard about the political and community fight in Woodlawn over housing some of them in the building that used to be the Wadsworth Elementary School. And I know, listen, I know, I know that the political state's response to migration and the the state's response to asylum, I know that it's complicated and complex. So we should pray for the city of man. You know? We should pray that smart, thoughtful people will make decisions that are informed by wisdom and love. And to the extent that any of us can be involved in any way in the levers of power towards that end, then we definitely should. But I'm telling you, church, right now, for the people of God, for people like us in the streets of our city, in our neighborhoods, on our blocks, the response to these things is very simple, very uncluttered, and very uncomplicated. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you As the native among you, you shall love him as yourself. That's the through line of Scripture. And Jesus' teaching on this was incredibly clear. (laughs) 
The king will say, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world because I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And they'll say, well, Jesus, when did we see you as a stranger? When did we welcome you? And the king will say, truly, I tell you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's our identity. I'm glad that we have places in the city, partner ministries like World Relief that we can work with to help welcome refugees into our city. Later on, you'll hear about a very specific way to be involved in welcoming refugees. And I hope you'll consider being a part of that because it's simply what it means for us to follow Jesus in faith. To follow the one who started life as a stranger with us and for us. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked, became furious. Herod was a tyrant, and like all tyrants, he was riddled with fear. So he led by fear, he ruled by fear, he killed by fear. Herod killed three of his sons. Herod killed his brother-in-law. Herod killed one of his wives. Herod killed ten guys who were conspiring to assassinate him, and he killed their entire families too. On his deathbed, as he lay dying, Herod was worried that no one would be sad at his funeral, and so he issued an order to kill a bunch of Judean noblemen so that at least someone at his funeral would be in tears. So when he is faced by the threat of a baby who would be king, he killed. We don't know for sure, but a city the size of Bethlehem at that time would have probably had between 10 and, and 30 boys under the age of two, and suddenly they are all gone. Matthew doesn't describe the great horror of it, but he paints a haunting picture of the effect of it. He draws from the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had imagined Rachel as the ideal mom watching her children being taken off into exile. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. There are always Herods. There are always Herods. And part of us, church, hearing this story as people who are following Jesus in faith, trying to grapple with what it means to follow Jesus in faith, part of us hearing this story is to first look at our own lives and try to figure out where the shadow of Herod falls over us. Where does fear drive me to do things that hurt the people around me? Where and about what does the threat of Jesus make me uh, furious? And what does that rage do? You know, when, when I fear that people aren't going to take me seriously, 
or that I'm going to be alone or I fear that I won't be able to hold all of the pieces together much longer, what does that lead me to do? When I feel that resistance, that resistance to the very notion that God might care about what I do with my, with my body or how I carry out my relationships or what I do with my money or my, my time or my talents. The fear and the resistance that was present in Herod is present in me and you too and it, it doesn't do it doesn't do anyone any good to pretend that it isn't. But church, we have someone who came in solidarity with us. We have someone who has come in solidarity with us, who has taken all of that fear and who has taken all of that resistance and all of the damage that it has caused or will cause, and he has borne it away from us. We have someone who by his spirit is every hour here with us. Who every hour offers us his forgiveness and his mercy. Who every hour by the spirit offers the power to weaken the grip of all of that stuff in our lives. And to lead us every hour into looking more and more like he did for the life of the world. That's who we follow in faith, church. That's who we follow. The light of the world. And at his coming, the shadow of all of the Herods, of all of the fallen world, those shadows began to recede. And one day, it is the absolute truth. One day in our world and in the lives of the faithful, those shadows will be no more. That is the truth. That is the real solid hope of Jesus' solidarity with us. He was drawn to us (laughs) inexplicably from our point of view, but without hesitation and full of love from his point of view so that he could make us into new creation so that he could call us to be light in the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the light of the world, the light of all people everywhere and at all times. And we ask, Father, that you would be happy to do whatever that work is that you need to do in us as individuals and as a church to weaken the grip of fear and resistance in our own lives, to increase our hunger and thirst for the light so that through us you can love the broken world, so that we can grow up in our faith, so that we can look like Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.